Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab number 316 Premium for Thursday, February 17th, 2011. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab Premium. You know why you're here. For all our new premium members, welcome. For all our existing premium members and our new premium members, thank you. Uh, I am Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire. And here in uh, warm, toasty <laughs> Fairfield, Connecticut. Well, if you consider 56 degrees warm and toasty, which... It's amazing how warm and toasty it feels after two degrees for several weeks. Yeah. Yes. Uh, where am I? Fairfield? Yeah. Fair, uh, did I say that? Yeah. Fairfield, okay. Connecticut. John F. Braun. I'm here. And uh, and we know why we're here. We're here to, we to answer your questions. and, and all, We've all got a lot stuff. of questions from you folks this week, too. It's been uh, it's been good. Not all of them make sense for the show. We've had quite a bit going on via email, too. But uh, and of course, you can always email us to premium at MacGeekGab.com. That is uh, that is your right as a premium subscriber. Uh, all right. So, uh, Gary wrote, Hey guys, I currently have an iPad and as John did, I pre-ordered my Verizon iPhone four. Uh, okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, unlike John, but, what's he saying? I have some apps that are iPad only and a bunch of apps that will work on either an iPad or an iPhone. I still plan to use my iPad as the bigger screen size is great for having to read books for school, etc." Will problems occur as a result of syncing these two devices on the same iTunes library? I don't plan to do it at the same time since the iPhone 4 will come with a shiny new USB cable and I could connect them both at the same time since my uh, 12-inch Mac Pro has, MacBook Pro has two USB ports. Thanks in advance. Okay. Uh, yeah. So the short answer to the question is, no, you won't have any problem. And as many of you probably already know or have found out recently or will find out someday. Yeah, you can uh, sync multiple devices to the same uh, iTunes library. It manages them device by device. So any settings you have for one device don't necessarily uh, carry over. In fact, don't carry over to the other uh, unless it's just iTunes defaults. So, yeah, you can totally manage it individually and, and it works great. And and to your point, Gary, Yes, you can sync multiple devices simultaneously too. Uh, I've I often yeah I don't sync very often, but when I sync, I actually often do sync both my iPod uh, or my iPhone and my uh, and my iPad. And I've actually done it where I've uh, I was synced in you know my i my uh, regular you know, like iPod Classic at the same time. And iTunes is fine with it. I mean, it you know beats on the disc a lot because it's reading a bunch of different files, but. Uh, but it, it does it. No problem. The, the one thing, John, that uh, that I'll add and then I'll I'll send it over to you because you've you've been through this uh, or newly to this uh, is that there is a checkbox when you plug your device in, uh, you click on your device in iTunes, you go to your device and go to apps. There's a checkbox below the list of apps named automatically sync new apps. As soon as I had two iOS devices. I turned that off because I found I was, you know, downloading something on one and then automatically finding it on the other. And that, that actually got kind of confusing. Uh, there's, 
there are things that will work on both, as Gary said, that I don't really want to have on both. So uh, so I, I manage it manually and that that's worked really, really well for me. So uh, so that that's how I use it. But of course, that's just personal preference. John, and I'll agree with you. Well, to his question, will problems occur? I'm. I'm, I'm not going to violently disagree with you. We'll, we'll save that for later. Okay, it's always good. great fun. Yes. But, but no, I'll, I, I'll add a caveat to that. If the apps are written and tagged properly, because I've had a few, uh, so I'll describe my, what happened to me when I got my iPhone. So, so I had an iPod Touch, I think it's third generation, the one without the camera. Yep. Sync to my MacBook. And then when I got the, and, and that's the machine that I pretty much use on a day-to-day basis. When I got the iPhone, I just, you know, dove right in, didn't even read the instructions. I figured, you know, this is Apple. And I just plugged it in to iTunes and it marched right along. There were a few, uh, you know, I had to agree to, you know, some, you know, huge <laughs> agreement and then it continued. And then it did what you said, Dave, or, or the, the box that you talked about it is it automatically started syncing all of my iPod touch applications to my iPhone, right. which was nice because most of them I wanted to use. However, that box was checked. Now, what happened is when I then, so, you know, then I got some apps on the iPhone, right. uh, you know, through the app store on the iPhone. And then a couple of days later, I synced my iPod touch. And here's where things got a little weird because at least my iPod touch does not have all the capabilities that the iPhone has. Most notably, it does not have a camera. Uh, yes. and, it, and, it, and it did come up and said after the syncing process, it came up with a warning It said, well, you know, there were three apps that, that I couldn't sync. Dumb, dumb. It didn't say dumb, dumb, because they're not going to work properly on your device. And so that's where I fell, where I did the same thing you did, Dave. I said, well, you know, if that's the case, if there's going to be confusion, then I don't want to automatically, nor do I, I think like you, I don't want to sync all the apps. Now I do remember, and I think it's based on flags that are set within the app. And I remember I had an aggravating situation. I think it was one of the financial apps, Chase or something like that. And they had an app that would only run on an iPhone. And there was no technical reason that it could not run on the iPod touch because it was just a web app. Uh, Unless they were doing something very specific to the iPhone, I couldn't imagine what, because again, it was just basically a web browser. And eventually they fixed the problem because people were hollering at them saying, guys, why doesn't this run on the iPod touch? There's no reason. So so I would say if the app is configured and and tagged properly, then no, you should not have any problem. If it needs a camera and and one's not there, then, well, either it'll come up and say, yeah, I can't sync, or it may fall back to some other functionality. For example, if it's an image processing app, it doesn't necessarily need a camera, but it could still draw on the photo library within sure. uh, the photos that are stored in the device. So it may act differently. Right. Uh, it, and yeah, and so to, that, your, to your point, Karsten, yeah, you'll, you'll find there are plenty of apps uh, for the iPad that just don't work on, on, uh, on the iPhone or iPod touch. And there are some that go the other direction that won't work, uh, up the, up the channel. And, and it, again, as John said, as long as the developer tags that, right, you're not going to have a problem. In fact, you're not even going to have the option of putting those apps on your, uh, on your, on, on the wrong device. So well, on the iPad, Dave, uh, so I guess most apps that run on the iPhone should run on the iPad, though they may, they may be grainy. I guess it'll, you know, pixel double or whatever. Yeah. Some, so they may not look right. Some, but, but there are, there are apps that I've seen. And I think busy to do is one of them where for whatever reason that the developer decided now yeah, that, you know, this doesn't work on the iPad like I want it to. And so they just uncheck that bit uh, when they build the app and, and then it just 
you know, it's not an option. I can't put busy to do on my iPad. Right. Um, even if, even if I'm willing to do it in, you know, you have one of two modes. It's either pixel doubled uh, and it takes up most of the screen or not pixel doubled. And then it's just a little, you know, you get like a little iPhone screen in the middle of your uh, iPad. But all right. Moving on to Karsten, staying in the iTunes realm. Karsten writes, I bought my wife a new MacBook Air since her old Windows laptop was at the end of its life. I have the MacBook running with all her apps, but I'm researching how to move her iTunes folder from her Windows PC to Mac. I know I can open iTunes, the latest version on the Mac, so it creates the folders, close iTunes, and simply copy the iTunes folder. But that would be too easy for you guys. And he's right. Uh, not that it would be too easy. It's fine by us. Uh, you can do that. You create, you open iTunes, close it, and then just drag the uh, the Windows folder over. And uh, and everyone that has done that has reported success. Uh, but he doesn't want to do it because he says, we use a Drobo FS to store all our ripped CDs. And my wife links iTunes to the network drive. When she syncs her iPhone 4, it syncs her local podcast and her networked music to the phone. My question is, what happens if I just copy the whole Windows iTunes directory to the iTunes directory on the MacBook? Will all her apps, local podcasts, and network music remain the same? My two cents tells me that everything will work except the network music, and that I will have to do a search and replace on the iTunes library.xml file and replace the Windows network path with how the Mac sees the share. All the songs are added with a UNC path. Okay, so... Carson, I'm with you on this, I, and I believe your plan will, plan will work. Now, you could go ahead and edit the XML file. And if you do that, uh, first of all, you have to do it with iTunes closed. But, but secondly, I don't, and it's been a while since I've edited the, the XML file, but I don't think iTunes will automatically read that in. I think the XML file is an output uh, device and a, and a backup uh, device for, for iTunes. I think it reads the binary version of the file with the current one. So you may need to tell it to rescan your XML file. And there's a little app called iTunes library updater that triggers that functionality. However, uh, I don't think that's not the, the path I would recommend because uh, iTunes has, has some smarts now in terms of moving files around because you're not alone. People did this all the time. Now you've got sort of a unique setup, but, but everybody has their own unique setup. And, and every now and then we do have to move our iTunes library from one drive to another. And iTunes is really kind of persnickety about that. And it starts looking at the old place and telling you, Oh, these files can't be found, but it got a little bit smarter about that. So it'll still tell you that all those files can't be found. But if you double click on one to play it, just like it used to, it would come up and say, I can't find this file, but go ahead and navigate to it and I'll play it. So find the file, you know, double click on one and then use the little interface to navigate. What I believe in, I believe this is new with iTunes 10. So it's been around for a little while. When you finish navigating and say, go, it'll pop up another dialogue that says, do you want iTunes to use this location to find all other missing files? Now you're not changing the location of your iTunes uh, your, your, uh, your, uh, music store, your music folder or anything like that, but you are telling it to, uh, you know, go search whatever location you've chosen. In your case, that's going to be a folder on your Drobo FS and chances are it's going to find a bunch of the files that are out there. It may not find all of them. My experience has been that it, I usually 
have to do two or three of these before it'll go and, and hunt. And presumably it's got some algorithm that it's using and it's somewhat flawed, but, but it's certainly better than it used to be. And that might solve the problem for you. That's my feeling anyway. That's a, that's a good feeling. It is. Now I'm going to mention something that you want to be aware of when you start adding new computers to your, uh, to your environment, Dave. Uh, yes. And he I'd should, actually he should do this. something on his wife's Windows laptop very soon. Absolutely. Yes. And what you want to do is when you go to iTunes, well, it's not the end of the world if he doesn't, but it's, mm. it's going to bite you eventually. Right. So here's the problem. Or here's, the, here's where you want to go. So when you fire up iTunes, at least on the Mac, and, and I think it's in the same menu, but there's going to be a store menu, and then there's going to be a selection, deauthorize this computer. Assuming it's authorized. Right. On, his, on the Mac, it may not yet be. Right. I'm going to assume that the Windows machine is authorized. Correct. What you want to do. Now, the reason that you want to deauthorize is because Apple... Uh, from what I can tell, will allow up to five machines to be authorized under an account. Five computers. Or five computers. Yes. Well, machines, computers, yes. Well, but, be, uh, you know, we don't want to confuse iPads, iPhones, iPod Touches, because okay. you have an unlimited number of those that can be registered. Right. Allows five computers. And what happens is if you try to add another one, it's going to be like, well, you exceeded your limit. So what you So there are two ways to get around this. So one, you want to be sure that before you decommission a machine... A computer, I'm sorry, a computer that has been authorized that you go to the store menu and you say deauthorize this computer. Right. Because again, Apple has a limit of five. Now, the other thing you can do, Dave, and you know, I just noticed this because, you know, as, as I was thinking about this, this case here, uh, and we'll link to an article. It's a HT1420 about iTunes store authorization and deauthorization. Now, I looked, the, I looked Dave... And I checked my limit, and, and what it says for me, Dave, is it says, well, you have five computers, um, you know, authorized under this account. And I'm like, well, that's funny because, you know. You've only got two. <laughs> I mean, I got the MacBook Pro and I got the Mac Mini. Now, I do have. Now, how did this happen, you ask? Well, I'll tell you how this happened because I'm looking at it. I see my, uh, my trusty uh, Power Mac G5 on the floor uh, along with a Power Mac G4. <laughs> and and probably another portable computer. Yep. So what do you do? And the thing is, yeah, I can hook them up and, and deauthorize them. But the, there's another thing that you can do, but Apple doesn't, uh, because, you know, they want to keep an eye on you and make sure you don't go crazy. Well, I actually, you, I think if you try to register more than five, it will direct you to a web page where you can reset this. Uh, and you reset well, the countdown right. to zero, right? Well, the other way you can do this, Dave, is so... What you do is when you try to get into the when you get the login prompt for uh, for the Apple Store from iTunes, you click on View Account. Okay. And then within iTunes, it will show you this nice window. Yep. And one of the choices at the top, well, it won't always appear. It, it will appear. Um, and there's a button here. So so right now I'm looking at my account. I won't read the details like the credit card number. Please do. Actually. <laughs> Everybody get your pencils out. Actually, it only shows the last four digits, which is oh, nice. Oh, that's too bad. Um, but it shows here, computer authorizations. It says five machines. See, that's why I said machine, Dave. I got that's, you. that's what Apple said. But, but no, you make a very good point. And it says five machines are authorized to play content purchase with this account. And then next to it is a button that says deauthorize all. Right. Now, you won't always see that button. Uh, from what I can see in the support article, you can only do this once per year unless you have an extenuating circumstance and then you call Apple and they'll re-enable it. Right. Um, 
So the guidance here is you can either, if, if you've reached your limit, like I think I may deauthorize all and reauthorize my, my two machines. So the count is down, back down to two. Yep. And he may want to make sure again, but before you toss that, that old machine, uh, deauthorize it. So you, so you don't hit this limit. Right. Cool. Uh, all right. Jared writes, I use a brand spanking new 13 inch MacBook pro as my primary machine at home. I have a hinge dock, uh, for quickly connecting said MacBook pro to use in a desktop environment. It is an awesome setup. My dilemma is that every time I dock my MacBook pro, my screen resolution changes due to my external monitors resolution being 1600 by 900 requiring me to move all my windows and dashboard widgets around. Then when I undock, I have to go through the same hassle to restore things back to where they were. When I'm portable, I like my dock to be hidden. When at the desktop, I like the dock to show. Do you know any of any utility that will save my settings into a profile so that I don't have to do all this manually? I've tried switch res X, but it was not the answer or I wasn't doing it right. Either way, your help is greatly appreciated. All right. So, I think, you know, the first thing I jump to here is an app that we've mentioned a couple of times, but it's it's always worth re-mentioning, especially in a different context. And that is an app called Marco Polo. The concept behind Marco Polo is you tell it, hey, I have these multiple setups that I want to use. Now, they could be multiple setups because of hardware. They could be multiple setups because of networks. You know, you might have a situation like Jared's where you want different settings based on what hardware is plugged in. Uh, you might have a situation where at, when you're at work with your laptop, you want one printer to be the default and, you know, one other thing to be set this way. And when you're at home with that same laptop, you want the settings to be something else, maybe a different default printer or, or what have you. Marco Polo uh, allows you to build these profiles. But on top of that, you can also set triggers where you say, hey, look, when an external monitor with, you know, these characteristics is plugged in, go ahead and switch to profile B or when that monitor is not plugged in, switch to A or when that monitor is plugged in and when this printer is available on the, on the network, switch to profile C. And so you can set these rules up and it's somewhat convoluted only because there's a lot of options, but it's actually pretty straightforward. And, uh, and I think that's, that's going to help you because in it's got a lot of things that it can control, but worst case, uh, if the option's not available inside Marco Polo, of course you can run an Apple script and, and then from there you can do just about anything you want to, uh, to change settings. So, so that's, uh, that would be my solution, John. And I have another solution, Dave. Awesome. And you know, this kind of shocked me. It, it freaks me out when this happens. So, you know, I was whipping out the Google foo trying yeah. to search for a problem. Because part of what we do, Dave, is, uh, you know, but part of, or at least what I do, is trying to get the right wording to, to get, you know, whatever's out there on the web through Google uh, to come up with a problem, okay. a solution to a problem. And here's what I found. So I, f- I, I was searching for a solution to this problem, and I found this article, Dave, and it was titled, Desktop a Mess, Clean It Up with Desktop Resetter. You know who wrote the article? <laughs> Did you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was a Monday's Mac gadget that I wrote back in February 28th, 2000. Wow. And, and believe it or not, the vendor, and, and looking at the screenshot here, I think this was actually for pre-OS 10. Yeah, of course it was pre-OS 10. Wow. I don't remember exactly. But, but it's, it's a product called Desktop Resetter. And from what I can see, there, there are two... So back then it was version 2.1. Now, I did a search here, and it looks like the last time they updated that product 
was around 2005. And, and uh, I have a link. Uh, so that's version 2.9. Okay. And the description of, of what it does is, is pretty much, I think, what we're looking for here. It says, Desktop Resetter is an easy-to-use program that stores desktop item positions so that they may be restored when inadvertently moved, such as after playing a game, changing monitor resolutions, et cetera, et cetera. It also looks like they have a slightly newer product, so I'll link to both of them. Uh, okay. I don't know if, if, they're, if one replaces the other or not, uh, but it's called Desktility. Okay. And I think it incorporates the functionality of desktop resetter and does a few other things. So the, the other reflection that I have on this, Dave, is that, you know, this has been a problem even before OS 10 on the Mac the, the is whenever you change resolutions, yeah. it tends. And I think it's, it's mostly when you go from larger to smaller is that everything just gets all. Yeah. You, you just lose what you had. This may, this may be part of it. The, the only problem with, with desktop resetter and desktility is that they don't have multiple profiles for them, nor do they change dock settings or anything like that. Right. So they're not going to quite, you know, th this might be the, the right thing to use when you're in laptop only mode, you know, without the uh, without the external monitor, get things set up the way you want and save it here. But then make sure you only use Destility when you're back to that mode. If you if you start saving things in, in with the big monitor up, it's not going to help you. Right. I, I think I'm pretty sure that that it's uh, that it's sort of one setting that it saves. It's a it's a one trick pony, not a two trick pony. Hmm. You know, yeah, it's hard. It, it I, I see what you're saying. It, it appears that's the case. Yeah. But uh, another thing to try. But but I like I like your solution as well. So between those two, I I, I think he'll uh, he'll come up with something. Though it is aggravating because it it, it oh, I don't change monitors often. I don't know about you or change. Uh, I do all the time actually. Oh, okay. Well, anytime I travel and and there's there's actually a utility I started using called size up and I, and we've mentioned it here before. In fact, I think it was a cool stuff found many moons ago, but, uh, it, what it will do is you, um, it allows you to position desktop windows automatically or, or with a predefined criteria. So for me, I like my mail to take up, uh, the left half of one of my screens, but a little bit more than the left half. And then my browser I have actually on the right half, of that screen, but, but it, it's really more like 55, 45. And so I've gone into size up and set all these things up. And now uh, by hitting control option command, and then the left arrow, it takes whatever the frontmost window is. And so I do this when mails up and it resizes it to the left half of my screen. And then I do the same with my browser window, control option, command, right arrow, and boom, it pops that over and it gets it perfect, which is also great because a lot of times Safari will open a new window in a place other than where I like to have my Safari windows. And so I can use size up to just bounce it right over there. And, uh, and that works really well. So, you know, yeah, but there's, there's there you, for, for someone who does what Jared's doing, you, you got to find something. And so, the, you know, any one of the, the multiple things we've mentioned here, Jared might be part of your solution, or you might use multiples, right? You, you might like, uh, you know, Marco Polo and Destility, and that's going to do your thing for you. And off you go. Yeah, Destility has a trial, so you can try it out and see good. if it's for you. That's good. We always like stuff like that. That's Absolutely. Good. All right. We have an interesting problem from Alan. Oh, poor Alan. Alan's oh, poor nice, Alan. Alan's a nice guy. Well, uh, so 
Yeah, Alan uh, is, I believe he's still the president of PMUG, which is the Princeton Mac Users Group down in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, where I go and speak once a year. In fact, I'm going to be there in April. So if you're around, I can't remember the date, but you can go to PMUG's website. Check it out. Uh, But I will be there speaking. Alan writes, my niece has a MacBook that her high school gave her last year running Mac OS 10 version 10.5.8. A few days ago, the iSight camera stopped working with Skype, iChat, and iMovie. Photo Booth was the only application with which it worked. She has done her troubleshooting homework. Uh, Looking into the system profiler, her USB device tree revealed a device called built-in iSight. Other troubleshooting steps that she has tried have included, of course, turning the laptop, laptop back off and on, creating a test user account to try and replicate the problem, and the same issues occurred in the test account. A few days ago, she updated her Skype software to the latest version, 5.0. As some Skype users have reported issues with the update, she downloaded the previous release and installed that, but it didn't matter. She also performed an SMC reset and a PRAM reset with no luck. After all of the above, she also discovered that she can no longer import photos from her camera, iPod, or desktop into iPhoto. All right, so I guess we're going to pass this one back and forth a little bit. Uh, You know, I had MacBook Pro camera issues, and that's what led to me sending my hmm. MacBook Pro in um I don't know a couple of whatever it was a couple of months ago and and they wound up well they wound up saying they did nothing but of course they replaced the motherboard and the screen and and uh, the keyboard and the mouse and I think everything and uh, and then it worked fine after they did nothing um so I, you know in in that case though my MacBook Pro was not showing up or my um eyesight was not showing up in system profiler uh for her, the fact that it's showing up in System Profiler and also working inside of Photo Booth tells me that at least on the hardware level, things work, right? Uh, and, and so that, that kind of leads me to thinking that it's a software problem and maybe a, a driver issue. Uh, I, I, did, I did look at a couple of things, John, and I stumbled across a couple of very curious things. Number one was uh, a little utility called EyeSight Disabler. And we'll link to it. It's at techslaves.org. And uh, what it does is it essentially takes the QuickTime USB digitizer and then two VDC uh, uh, frameworks, if you will, and moves them out of the way uh, so that they don't exist anymore and therefore the system can't use them and therefore nothing can access your eyesight except FaceTime has its own VDC driver built in and can still work even if you've run this little eyesight disabler. So that got me to thinking, well, maybe there's something similar going on with photo booth though in inspecting the package bundle. That's not there. So it, but, but it's clearly some sort of software issue. So, uh, you know, my, my gut says to, uh, to reinstall, the combo updater in hopes that that actually gets you there. So the ten five eight combo updater for leopard might have this driver or it might do a permissions repair that fixes things or, uh, you know, reenumerating all your, your kects and all that stuff. So, you know, the combo updater, you could do all that stuff individually, but the combo updater makes it easy and it reinstalls all the, all that data failing that I'd, you know, create a new boot disc, like reinstall OS 10 on an external drive or something and see if it's working there just to truly rule out hardware. But my guess is because it works in photo booth, I think it's a software thing. And I think it's a driver, uh, you know, software related to hardware, but, but not a hardware issue. Yeah. That's my gut. What do you think, John? 
About what? <laughs> oh. oh, about this. Well, I'm going to tell you, Dave. So first, I wanted to poke around on the system and find out anything I cite specific. And okay. I found it. But I think it's worth mentioning how you would find this, Dave. Because normally, if you search for system files, you're not going to find them unless you uh, do something special. So I'm going to go over this very quickly. So I did a find, Command F in the finder. Okay. And then you're going to see a little pull down, other. Okay. I'm sorry. No, that's not the one I wanted. No, kind is. Ah, where is it? Yeah, I can I can get you there. Here. So so you you do a find in the finder, and then over on the right of that find window, you'll see save and plus, and you want to hit plus, and at that point. And and st- and correct me if I'm wrong here. You'll see a little drop down, and if the option for system files is here, you're good to go. If not, choose other and select system files right, from right, the yeah. pop up. And and then once you've done that, uh, you want to say system files are included in your current search. Are included. Okay. All right. Yeah. The the, the mini is different from back, my MacBook. Man. I got your back. No, I know that. It's funny because I'm seeing slightly different things when I'm trying it on the Mini versus my MacBook. Uh, I'm not quite sure why. Well, you're using right. Total Finder on one of them. No, I'm using it on both of them. Oh, okay. Anyways, but I found... So, so then once you do that, then I search for EyeSight and uh, you know a whole bunch of things come up and I sorted it. And there is a kernel extension. And the nice thing is if you click on something in this finder, it'll tell you where it is. So it's Macintosh HD system library extensions, apple underscore eyesight dot K-E-X-T. Okay. Uh, maybe worth looking at that. Now I'm looking at mine. It's 119K, 78,210 bytes, uh, version 4.0.1, copyright 2008, Apple computer. So you want to make sure that the, uh, all of that data matches up. My, now you could try. My, my guess is... That if it's showing up in system profiler as built-in eyesight, I, I I understand. You know what I mean? That that, that I, that's I probably in place. Probably. I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. Just just something to to double check. And maybe you want to try to restore an earlier version. So if any of that data is off, you may want to try to restore an earlier earlier version from from Time Machine. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the way you could do that, Dave, is from the finder, you say go. And this one, I think I don't need your help with. So you can say go <laughs> and go to folder. So, so under the go menu, there's a go to folder. And that lets you type in the path of things that normally aren't accessible from the, uh, though, though this is accessible from the, from the finder, but some things aren't. Or you could just uh, go to that photo. So system library extensions, and you can go back in time and maybe try to restore an earlier, earlier version. Maybe that'll do it. But the thing that occurred to me, Dave, when I was looking at the description of the devices that do not work properly. Yes. So I'm going to kind of lean, you know, my gut tells me too that it's software, but it may be flaky hardware. And the only reason I say that is when I was looking at the description of all the things that don't work did yep. you notice a common thread? Well, they're all USB devices. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, uh, and actually, it's important to note the built-in EyeSight uh, is a USB device. Now, the original EyeSight, which was an external camera, was a FireWire device, but that has changed. So it is a USB device. So, John, yeah, you're, you're right that, that uh, there, there's something going on with, with USB on this machine, but I don't think... It's a hardware problem with USB only because this camera works in photo booth 100% of the time. Yeah, and I'm just wondering if photo booth is is accessing it in a different 
Still gotta go USB. I know, I know. I was scratching my head the same way yeah. too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but 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 again, that occurred to me hearing about these. So one thing you may want to try is maybe try a different USB. Uh, what what machine is this? Uh, it is a MacBook uh, Pro or Mac MacBook MacBook, MacBook. Yeah. Okay. For the devices that uh, all the other USB devices that aren't working, try. I believe that machine has more than one USB port. So yep. it could be that one of the USB buses is, is, uh, is upset. Could be just, yep. just, you know, just speculation. Yep. But, yep. but I'm leaning with you and you know, it surprised me because I had that problem a little while ago, Dave, with the, uh, you know, there was one webcam that you and I were using for a while. Right. And for right. whatever stupid reason and installed this little, uh, quick time, add-on or extension that traumatized some other part of the system that I totally didn't expect. And you told me exactly where to go to, to remove it. And then everything was good. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can, yeah. right. Software can, you know, again, the, the difference, the, 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 well, software can, software problems can look like hardware problems. The difference is that software problems are repeatable consistently. Uh, you know, the only hardware problem that's repeatable consistently is dead hardware. A- anything else, you know, it gets it gets flaky and usually it's flaky before it's dead. So when you see something that's consistent and with this, it's like, you know, if the camera just didn't work well, then we and it didn't show up in the thing and, you know, nothing in system profiler, then I'd say, yeah, bad hardware. But it's working in one app. So that completely rules out bad hardware, you know, as long as it works consistently. Well, no, there. no, no, no. Yeah. OK. All right. I think I'm with you on that. Now, now the other place to look here, yeah, I mean, I see System Library QuickTime, and there's a whole bunch of little. Yeah, I, I think that's where that that weird component was that uh, yep. th- that was causing me all this grief. And it looks like, no, no, no. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough one. But hopefully, the reinstall of the combo updater uh, will will take care of this. Uh, and it, again, it could be a number, any one of a number of things. It could be that uh, the drivers need to be reenumerated, which the installer will do it could be a permissions issue which the installer will take care of or it could be you know one bad file out there that all these other programs are relying on and hopefully the combo updater will take care of that um if that component's been updated since leopard came out if not then you got to go back and start from scratch and you know uh, one last thing here dave and yep. you know this is a problem that you know you and i said we solve afterwards but maybe i'll ask you to help me solve it now because i, I think it's okay. applicable but, but okay. it was a way so one thing that uh, one thing one app that I got on my iPhone was a, a little uh, it's kind of a clue little so, thing. So is I this think, wait can I let me let me just back up a little bit. So so now we're we're done with This is troubleshooting. We're done with Alan and now host John asks Well I don't think uh, well no I don't think we're we're done with Alan yet because okay. uh, I'm going to suggest an additional thing he may want to try here All to right. solve the problem. But but you got your own thing to my going case. On. Right. So go ahead. All right, but I'm going to tell you quickly. So I got this this app. It's a grocery shopping app, and it actually is from a coupons.com. I think it's called Grocery IQ, and it's it's kind of neat. I think it actually scans barcodes. It's really kind of slick, and it lets you print envelope, uh, print coupons, and all this neat stuff. Now this is a, a Mac a Mac app. Well, no, this is a iPhone app. Okay, and oddly enough, it printed to my HP printer that doesn't isn't accessible with AirPrint, which is yet another issue. Okay. Like, wait a second, how can it see it? It's, it's not yeah, supposed to. That's pretty cool. But anyways, it was printing coupons to my HP printer. Now, the thing is, they also have a plug-in on the Mac that will print coupons. 
but it's a plug-in because I guess there are restrictions. You know, they want to make sure you, you don't print thousands of these coupons. And, you know, typically I think it intercepts the print stream and it, it does some, some, some method of preventing you from yeah intercepting the print stream and, and printing a, a gazillion of these. Okay. I, I don't know. I'd be concerned about that. But anyways, it would not work on my MacBook Pro. Huh. I would install the plugin. I saw it in my plugins directory. And when I tried to print, it would keep coming back to a page saying, hey, you better install the plugin, the, the coupon printer. I'm like, what the? And then I tried it on my Mac mini and it worked for my Mac mini. So I'm like, oh, okay. Well, what's the difference here? Well, so maybe this is a, this is a for, forgive me for being confused, but this is a browser plugin. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, you can go. It's, it's coupons.com and they let you print coupons, but, okay. but you need this plug-in. It's not a direct print thing. They right. won't show them on the screen and print them. The, it intercepts the print stream and it'll go to your default printer to print it. Okay. So it worked on my mini and I'm like, well, maybe the issue is that it's a wired, because it's it's hardwired into my, uh, yeah. you know, I'm doing wireless printing from, so I figured, well, maybe it's because I'm trying to print wirelessly from my MacBook Pro and wired with my Mac mini and that's why it works because that's a clear difference between the two. Then I thought in the back of my mind, well, let me ver- uh, let me do something, and this is why I'm suggesting this for Alan. I happen to have um, an SSD, uh, Express Card SSD, which has a fresh install of Mac OS X on it. Right. I'm like, okay, this will verify whether it's a problem with the machine or the way I have the printer hooked up. And so booted from OS X on the SSD, which has the same printer installed, you know, printing to it wirelessly, you know, through the airport. Tried to print the coupon. It worked great. <laughs> which actually aggravated me because I thought I isolated the problem. <laughs> so there's something. So, uh, so I guess what I'm suggesting is a fresh install, maybe on an external drive of OS 10 will, uh, will clear everything up here. Cause it sounds like, uh, although uh, I, I agree with the troubleshooting steps that were taken here. Yeah. You may want to try to create a fresh OS 10 installation on an external drive. That's not polluted with anything else. Yep. And, and that should give you and then start installing, fr- you know, these the, these apps fresh. That'll, I think, definitively nail down whether the, the camera is faulty or not or, right. or whether it's a hardware or software. And I think if it does work, which I suspect it would, then it's pointing towards some weird software thing on the MacBook itself. Right. Right. And, okay. you know, you can in that case, you can reinstall Leopard from the DVD back on top of itself. Just go and do the combo update or very shortly thereafter in case you've got some apps or, or uh, other things on your system that, that need 10.5.8 versus 10.5.0 or whatever you've got on your, on your DVD. But you can do that. Uh, but, but it would be better to test it on a, you know, on, a, on a fresh install first before just layering it on top of uh, what we call a maintenance install, right? Or a maintenance reinstall. Yeah, I, I guess the other thing worth mentioning is that creating a test user account is a good strategy, but the problem is if it's a extension that's common to all users, then that will not, right. You know, cause I tried that as well. It helps, I, it helps you narrow it down, right? It, it absolutely does. Yeah, yeah. Cause I tried that too. I created a new user on my it, MacBook and had the same problem. And I'm like, okay, well, it's, did. that's bizarre. I, did you, have you repaired permissions? Because what it sounds oh, yeah. like to me, yes, yes, I did that. I did that as well. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like a temp file issue, right? Like this plugin is doing something a little bit. It's making some assumptions it shouldn't make. Right. And is assuming that I can, you know, I'm going to get data from this website and I'm going to capture it and save it to this temp folder that I'm going to assume will let me write to it because by default it will. 
And, uh, and so then, you know, it does its thing and it writes to the temp folder and then reads from the temp folder and prints. And when there's nothing to read from the temp folder, it says, yep, I guess we're done. We're good. Everything's golden. So that's, that's kind of what it sounds like. It might not be that. It's weird. The thing is, I'm not alone. I saw several discussions in the Apple support groups where once people got into this mode where it keeps coming up after you install the plugin saying, Hey, you got to install the plugin again. People were never able to get out of that trap. Huh? Now, fortunately, try a I different have, browser. Yep. Well, oh. they have a Safari plugin and a Firefox. Okay. Plugin. And neither oh. one works on that machine. Nope. So yeah, I agree with smart. you. Yeah, I, I think it may be. Yeah. Behind the scenes and it does some weird stuff. It installs mm-hmm. a, a custom cups filter. And I mean, it's oh, doing some really. Oh, I have an idea. You could yeah. reset your printing system. <gasps> Ooh. Right. So you go into uh, system preferences. Oh, what a pain. Yeah, print, I know. Print and fax and then right click in the white space and choose reset printing system. And that will wipe out. If it's installing a custom print driver, that might be the uh, the answer there is to, to wipe out your printing system. It sounds like a big deal, but it's not, man. You just re-add. What do you, how many printers do yeah. you have? Uh, I think I got Well, two. Two. Okay. So there's, well, there's five minutes of your life you're not going to get back. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not that big of a deal, right? Yeah, and again, it's a cups filter, and I actually had to change permissions because the cups directory is actually like not even even super user can get into it. Okay, it's really kind of weird. Huh. Only print, I think, only the print daemon or whatever can get in there. Right. The, yeah, but I looked in there and I'm like, oh, look at. Or actually, I looked in the uninstaller that they provide, and they have a shell script, and it showed me all the pieces. But uh, okay, yeah, no, that's a good suggestion. I think the printing system is is somehow corrupted from a prior installation could, of the software. It could and it's be, just yeah, a mess. Yeah. All right. Enough about my problems. Who? <laughs> All right. Um, gosh, this one. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to go to Brian here. Yeah. The, I'm with you. Hi, Dave and John. This is Brian Mayer from Ocean City, Maryland. And my mobile me account is due for renewal in less than two weeks. Now, I've only been a Mac user for one year. And when I bought my iMac... I only had the iPod Touch, so I blindly bought a MobileMe account, thinking, I must need this. My year is almost up on the MobileMe, and since then I've bought an iPad and recently a MacBook Pro. I wanted your advice about renewing the MobileMe account. To be honest, I've not used the MobileMe account to any extent to sync anything. I thought I'd actually be using the 20 gigabyte uh, iDisk more than I actually have. But uh, my big question is, will MobileMe help me with keeping the iMac and my new MacBook Pro in sync? Or is that a big hassle that I don't need to deal with? I mainly use non-Apple programs for things such as Gmail, BusyCal, Dropbox, Evernote, all of which sync just fine on their own. And I use Amazon S3 for file storage because it's dirt cheap. I do want to learn how to share my two biggest folders, those being iTunes and iPhoto, uh, but I don't think MobileMe can help me there. So will I benefit from MobileMe now that I have the iMac and MacBook Pro, or am I overthinking this whole thing? And should I just let the dinosaur of syncing that is MobileMe sink into the tar pit and save myself 100 bucks? Love the show. Thanks, and here's where you cut me off. All right. Uh, so... You know, well, my quick answer on this, John, is for what he's talking about. No, he doesn't need mobile me. You know, the the find my iPhone thing that's free now. Right. So you don't have to pay for an account if you're not going to use the mobile me syncing. He's good to go. I think he's all right. I'm going to tell you why I still use it. So so the syncing. There, there's a number of things that it syncs. And if you don't and you can certainly find other services uh, to do this, Dave. 
you know, quickly looking over the, the system preference, I mean, you know, bookmarks, calendars, contacts, keychains, which to me is, is key. Uh, yeah. Uh, and notes. So uh, to me, it's worth being able to sync that among my, my various machines. The iDisk, yeah, I mean, there are other people like, uh, you know, iDisk actually has some performance issues. and, and yeah. That's putting it mildly. Uh, yeah. I mean, I still use it. And, and you know, they give you 20 gigs. Uh, but so the, the features that are worth it to me, Dave, and, and one that I tried, one I tried recently when we were traveling uh, to Macworld is, so I left my, uh, my Mac mini, which is wired to my router in sleep mode. And I tried back to my Mac yep. and dude, it's just so cool Yep. <laughs> to be able to access both your files and your desktop. So file sharing and screen sharing. So if you have a need to do that, I think that may make it worth it for you. Now, now does that work on the iPad or iDevices, Dave? No, but, but no. for, uh, for 30 bucks, you can just buy log me in and, and it works great. Uh, either over the web or, or, uh, or with their app. So, okay. So the one thing that would make it worthwhile is if you have a need to access your machines, no matter where you are over the internet. So back to my Mac, I think is one thing that makes it unique and worthwhile. Well, not unique, but worthwhile. And the other thing, and this is the thing that I take advantage of Dave. And, and to me, this, this makes it worthwhile. And, you know, can I plug my website web.me.com slash John Braun, where I have my photos or no, 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 you can't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing that makes it worth it to me is iWeb. And oh. iWeb even though it's dated and they haven't updated it, iWeb allows you to create what I think are, and you know, go, go to the address that I mentioned that Dave said you can't go to and look there. But the thing is iWeb offers, I mean, this is a lot of work here, man. I'm certainly not a web designer, but it offers some really awesome templates. No, but but iWeb, ties iWeb into, isn't for only for mobile me users. Anybody can use it. Well, right. But it publishes to mobile me. Yeah, but it can also just publish to a, a folder that you FTP yeah, or whatever. Yeah, sure, but right. but I like the integration. So sure, iWeb integration. You're paying a lot of money I, for that. Well, if you consider hundred bucks a lot of money. Yeah. Okay. Well, and that's another thing I thought I'd mention. Yeah. I'm not sure about this, Dave. So so one, to to me it's worth it. Is yep. that I have web.me.com and I have, you know, that's set up and I can hand it out to people. Yeah, to be to be fair, I, I won't give up my mobile me subscription. I, I do use it for syncing my contacts, my bookmarks. Uh, my Yojimbo. Um, I am using it for calendar now because uh, the new me.com Caldav stuff is better for me than right. Google ever was. Uh, so I've actually moved most of my stuff away from Google calendar. So, so yeah, I like it, but you know, for, for Brian, from what he described, no, I, I don't think so, but nope. there is one more thing to mention about this. And that's the price you said a oh, hundred, you said a hundred yeah. bucks. You're but, reading my mind. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah. You said a hundred bucks, but Amazon will do it for 70. So, uh, so you can go to Amazon, you got to buy it. They'll ship you a box and then there's a code in there. You enter the code in on it on uh, Apple's me.com website and that re ups you for a year. There are two versions available on Amazon. Well, there's the family pack, but there's two versions of the individual and two versions of the family pack, an old and a new it does not matter which you buy. There is no software that you're going to use. It's just the code and all the codes are valid. So there you go. Okay. And I found somebody, I'm not, I'm not sure what the catch is, that had it priced at $56. Wow. That's good. Who's that? And also if you're, uh, if you're part of, uh, the other thing, if you're part of a you know, large company, there, you may have an employee purchase program. There, there are educational discounts. 
uh, government, I think, well, no, I, I, if anything, they probably charge the government more. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, there, you, you can almost certainly get it for less than uh, the only thing you get with, with Apple charging you every year, which is what I do is the convenience of, you know, them just nailing your credit card every year. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right, cool. Moving on. Harry, uh, Harry wrote to me this morning and said, uh, I recall you talking about traveling with just your iPad and not bringing your MacBook at some time in the past. I'll be traveling next week and was wondering if you had any advice or comments on the topic. Uh, funnily enough, I was thinking about this for myself this morning because, as I mentioned, I'll be traveling next week, too, with the family. And so it's not a business trip, though, you know, there's always things that might come up where I might need to get access. Um, my piece, my main piece of advice for someone who wants to travel with only an iPad is to plan out your path ahead of time. Uh, the iPad is great at doing a lot of different things. And, and there's a lot of apps that can really open, open up your world. You know, uh, there are times when I need to uh, get a terminal shell into our servers that we host on. Well, I can do that from my iPad with the ISSH app or, or one of the, you know, there's, there's various apps out there that'll do it. Uh, but without that app, I can't do that. So even though my iPad is technically capable of making that happen, Without having the app on there and without having gone through the steps of ensuring that I have all the bits and pieces that I need, I can't do that. Whereas on my Mac, I just fire up terminal on any Mac. I fire it up. It's good to go. So same is true of FileMaker. You know, I use FileMaker Go and that is life changing, but I've got to make sure I have the app on there and that it's configured the right way. So plan your path ahead of time and test your path. So if you think about the things that you're going to want to do, and now if it's just email and web surfing, well, that stuff is built into the iPad and chances are you've already got it configured. So maybe you're going to be fine. Um, but, uh, but that, that's my advice is just plan your path ahead of time. I'm, I'm on the fence. I'll probably wind up bringing my MacBook pro uh, as a safety blanket and uh, hopefully never turning it on. So we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes. Now you have the iPad with 3g and Wi-Fi, Dave. No, I have, I, I bought the, uh, I, I got it the day they came out. So I just have Wi-Fi. Oh, okay. Cause I'm, I'm trying to figure out, especially with the Verizon unit, uh, when I should be using 3g and Wi-Fi, if I should use one or the other or both. And, uh, well, you're well, I'm learning some things of how, how it works Wait, in terms of your iPhone. You mean? Yes. So, I mean, really the, the, the simple answer is turn them both on and let the phone decide. And what the phone will decide is if it has access to Wi-Fi, it's going to use Wi-Fi instead of 3G. Yes. Yeah, I found that out. Yeah. Actually, I found that uh, running. Uh, what is my IP? Yeah, I found right. that Wi-Fi for the most part. The, the only surprise that I had, Dave, is that if 3G is off, I think we talked about it. Well, I don't know if we talked about it on the show, but if 3G is off, I don't get notifications that I have voicemail, which kind of took me by surprise. That was the only surprising thing coming from my crazer which I did not have a data plan with. And when I had voicemail, I'd get a you know, little thing saying, hey, dude, you got a voicemail. Right. Not so with the Verizon iPhone, because I guess it uses the 3G channel for that. I, I can call in manually. Sure. And pick up my voicemail. You can, I think it's star eight, six or something like that. But that, that surprised me because I, I turned 3G on and all of a sudden it said, hey, you got voicemail. I'm like, wow, that was cool. Wow. <laughs> what a coincidence. Yeah. And so, I think that's one of the differences between the AT&T yes. and Verizon phone is that on AT&T, right. 3G is both voice and data whereas on the verizon phone it's only 3g is only data is that is that right 
Or are they also transmitting? As far as I know, yeah, it's 3G. Yeah, because the thing is now AT&T is dinging Verizon. You may have seen this saying, well, our network can support surfing and voice on the network. And note that. Right. Note that specific wording. The thing is you can surf and talk on the Verizon iPhone, but you have to have Wi-Fi on. Yeah, for, that's weird though. I thought I thought Verizon was still using um 3G. I thought they were using 3G for voice, but maybe not. As far as I know, it's just for data and then the 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 voice is CDMA, which is their, you know, their their gig. So, uh, could be. Well, we'll dig in it a bit more, but yeah. um Yeah, it could be. Yep. Yeah, who knows? Next an iPad. You know, I'm 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 growing I as know. a person here. It's something else. <laughs> All right. Um Joe has an interesting question. Guys, recently I got a new time capsule, one gigabyte. I followed the installation instructions and connected it to my DSL modem. I started time capsule and things seemed to be going swimmingly. About a week later, I walked by the time capsule and noticed that the light was both amber and blinking. I used airport utility and it told me about a, quote, double NAT, close quote, problem. I unplugged the time capsule and waited a while and reconnected it to my modem. The airport utility told me that I had the same problem and said to click the button to turn it into bridge mode. I did so and I got a green light and everything seems to work. My question is, what happened and why was it necessary to put it into bridge mode? Here's a second question. I want to use open DNS, uh, but I've noticed that you can put in the location of your DNS server in two different locations, one in airport utility and one in the uh, systems preferences. And I don't know which is the correct one. Thanks for your help. Love the show. Bye. All right. Uh, so, what happened, Joe? And th- and this is John and I went through a little bit of this in the uh, in the pre-show. Is well, I think it's worth discussing. Uh, I, I want to level set here. What is? How do you know when you're using that? I think is the, is the is the first basic question here, Dave. Okay. Sorry if I interrupted, but no, we, no. But I think so, it's important to discuss what is NAT and how do you know when it's been. Well, well how did his device determine there was a problem that that there was too much NAT? So what, yeah, no. So right. We, we, we need to make sure everybody understands what NAT is. NAT is network address translation. And that probably doesn't really help a whole lot. So what does it do? Well, what NAT does in a, in a very, in a nutshell, NAT takes one IP address that it gets from typically your internet service provider, but whatever device is upstream, uh, it gets one IP address and then creates its own subnetwork of uh, multiple IP addresses. And it is the magic that allows all of our routers, our time capsules, our airport extremes, our Linksys routers, all of that stuff. NAT is the magic that allows those routers to plug into our cable and, and sometimes DSL modems and then share that connection amongst all of our computers without us really even thinking about it. You know, 10 Years, I'm trying to think of 10, maybe 15 years ago. This was kind of magic to me when I learned about this. It was like 1997, 98. 
And it was like, well, I want to have multiple machines sharing my my ISDN connection. Is there a technology to do it? And sure enough, it was like, yeah, there's a technology to do exactly that. And it's it's this it's NAT. So what Joe's router is complaining about is could I I add to it? You can interrupt anyway. So just go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, dude. And how do you know if, and what NAT does, and I think this is important because this will explain why the device was complaining. When you assign a NAT address, a NAT IP address has a very specific format, Dave. One, one, of, of one of it. Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. One of three forms. Yep. And there are two popular ones and then one not as popular. And I like using the, the bad boy, but it can either be a 10.0 as far as I can, or I'm looking right now at my airport utility. So yeah. it can be a 10.0 dot whatever address, a 192.168 address. And I think those are the most common, but I being the rebel here, I like using the, the not so common 172.16 range. Yep. Now, so if you have an IP address that it ha- begins with one of those three, then what you have, and I think those are also, also called non, non-routable IP addresses because they're meant for NAT. Right. Right now, you technically could use NAT with any IP address range, but but those are the smart ones to use it with, because, as you said, John, they're non routable. So the world kind of knows if that's your address. Don't try to figure out how to get there. Just trust the path back. That's right. Right. Yeah. So. So, yeah, no, that's good, because what happened is Joe's time machine was smart enough uh, or Joe's time capsule rather was smart enough to say, hey, uh, the IP address that I'm getting, so it gets an IP address. And, and in my case, you know, my, my router gets an IP address from the cable company, which is a real IP address, and then shares it with a bunch of these bogus NAT addresses, uh, which works great. But Joe's time capsule said, hey, wait a minute, the address I got is being handed down from a NAT router. So I think we've got a problem here because the the last thing you want to do is this double net. And we've talked about this on the show in other, in, in other ways, right? You, you know, when you have a, another airport router and you're extending your base station, you want to put it in bridge mode so that you're not setting up like two separate sub networks inside your house and, and driving yourself crazy. So, uh, and, and Joe, Joe's time capsule was right. He'd put it in bridge mode. And we checked the headers of your email, Joe, I hope you don't mind, uh, and confirmed that, in fact, your your email still came from a NAT routed IP address uh, in the 192.168 range. So what that tells me is that your DSL modem is a little bit more than a modem. Uh, it's a modem and a router because your DSL modem is doing NAT routing inside the box. Now, you may be able to log in and turn this off. But you may not need to because you've got your time capsule in bridge mode and everything's good to go. But uh, but that's what was happening is and and this is not uncommon for DSL modems. It's it's it is uncommon for cable modems at least in the U.S. Though there are some that do it. But uh, but DSL modems have been known to have been have had routers in them for a long time. Not all of them, but uh, but it's been a common common thing. That's my okay. story anyway. No, I, I'm with you. So so the time capsule saw it said oh look this address is one of these three ranges and that's I, not good i i think so i mean there would be other ways of testing 
to see if the the device upstream is handing you a, a, an address that's been routed via NAT or not. I mean, right. it, there's other things it could do, and it may actually be doing things much smarter than just comparing it against a list, right? But yep. uh, but yeah, no, I like it. Now, before we get to the second question, if we're, if we're going to get to it, but, yeah, but I, I, I want to touch on what you talked about, Dave, uh, okay. mail headers, because I've done something with this and actually we'll uh, talk about it in a future show, I think. But if you go into Apple Mail and you go to the view menu, message, long headers. Yep. The thing is, a lot of that stuff there, people don't want to see. Right. It's for but computers. One of, the pieces, right. one of the pieces of information in there is what you talked about, which is the IP address of the originating machine. So if you want to be overwhelmed by all this, the thing is mail.app and, and a lot of other email apps normally shield you from all this stuff because it's really not important. Right. But for, for geek purposes, like, like we're doing here, it may be important. Um, and the thing that I found is actually I use it to solve a little problem I had with filtering my incoming email because some people, instead of using my recipient, uh, my uh, Mac Observer email address will send the mail to themselves in the to field and my filters don't work. But I found that there is a couple of headers that actually have my uh, information. So right. I was able to create a rule that would reroute those, you know, people that do it wrong, in my opinion. <laughs> so. <laughs> to, so you, you mentioned using view message, uh, long headers. I, I actually, yes, for the same reason, uh, or for the same purpose, I use raw source and, and, and there's a reason Whoa. here now, well, if it's not a attachment, then I'm I, with you. It doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> Even if there's an attachment, it's okay. Right. I mean, well, you're going to get the bin hex or yeah, yeah it's going to be I'm, a mess. I just need to look at the top of the message. When you choose long headers, uh, what happens is mail mail does some sorting here. It still leaves the from subject date and to mm. and reply to up at the top. Uh, and when I'm looking at message headers, I, I want to see the order in which these headers were added to the message. So what, okay. what, what happens is, you know, as your message, as your email travels from mail server to mail server, and it usually has to go through, usually goes through at least two mail mm. servers. Um, sometimes only one if you're, if you're all on the same server, but, but otherwise it's going to jump through two, sometimes a third, rarely these days, but certainly possible. Uh, it, it, each server, as it does, its steps adds a header and it adds it to the top. So if you look at the headers starting at the bottom, which usually are something like, you know, message ID or X mailer, I mean, you'll see it right at the bottom before the top of the message and start reading up you can see what happened. And, and that's what I did with, with, uh, excuse me, with Joe's mail here is I just looked at, you know, what was above the from header here or the date header. And it said received from and gave his home IP address. And it's like, okay, great. Now I can see that. Yup. Even though we know from his question, he's turned off, uh, the NAT routing in his time capsule, he's still coming from a NAT routed address. So, okay, that, that kind of solidifies it. We know what's going mm -hmm. on and, and all is good, but it is also cool. Cause you can, you can step up through it and see, Oh, did, you know, there was one server in there that did some virus protection on this thing. That's kind of cool, you know, and you can see the results. And if you're geeky, eh, well, you know, I don't well, know I think also you. spammers will sometimes insert false mm -hmm. info in there to try to uh, throw you off of the, uh, that's so, right. 
Although I think spam, at least for me, you know, with filters, or, you know, Gmail or otherwise, uh, you know, still sometimes you can track down where it came from, but they will they will toss in what appears to be a legitimate header, but it's really not right to try to mislead you into thinking it came from somewhere it didn't. But anyways, the second question about DNS. Yeah. So uh, and, and again, I think this question, we need to explain what it is to start with. Open DNS. Well, D, let's explain what DNS is. When you visit a site like MacObserver.com, your computer doesn't know. Uh, computers don't talk in in domain names, right? They need to talk in IP addresses. So there needs to be a way that when you type in MacObserver.com, your computer knows to go to the IP address associated with that. And it's associated by what's called DNS or domain name system and domain name service. Uh and, and really all that right. does is translates names into IP addresses. Very, very straightforward. And all of us by default will use the DNS server that's assigned by our um, internet service provider. And that's fine. But there is a service called OpenDNS that's a lot of fun and can give you some control over your network. It can allow you to configure uh, what happens if you type in a bad address. It can allow you to filter out certain things like phishing attacks or pornography or, you know, various things, whatever, you know, whatever you choose. And, uh, and in some ways it might make things faster in some ways it might not, but, uh, but it can be an interesting service. The trick is if you want to use open DNS on your whole network, you need to put to answer Joe's question. You need to put the open DNS, uh, server address into your router because that way everything connected to your router will use that unless you bypass it by putting a different address onto your Mac. Does that answer the right. question, John? Well, I think so because uh, for example, I'm looking at my machine right now, Dave, and in the network ethernet uh, section here, yep. it shows DNS server 172.16.1.1. What is that? Well, of course you know what that is. That's my time capsule. Right. And that in turn is configured with the IP with the uh, DNS address of the the one that Opt Online offers. Now, yeah, so you're absolutely correct. So you could either now if you if you want to choose a different DNS, I would think the best strategy is you change your time capsule to point to something different, which I'm pretty sure you can do. And then all the machines that point to it will then use that. Right. And there actually is something I think, uh, what was it called? DNS bench. There, there is a utility actually out there because uh, I don't know how big an issue it is for, for most people, but they're, uh, let me see if that's the name of it uh, or server bench. Now I wrote an article about this a while ago, but, but there is a utility that will actually look at the latency and how long it takes. Cause sometimes, I mean, if a DNS gets overloaded, then you may be sitting there twiddling your thumbs thinking, why is this webpage taking forever? Right. It's because a webpage is trying to load maybe tens or hundreds of things. And because it has to resolve each one of these, if the, if the DNS server it's going to is slow, then you're going to be sitting there waiting. So, uh, is it server bench, but uh, open DNS is a good service. I use it here. And, uh, sure. and I like the control that, uh, that it gives me and, and it gives you some stats and you can see what's happened and, uh, and all that. And so, yeah, a lot of fun. We've talked about that on the, on the show before. I, I uh, while you look that up, John, I'm going to move on to, no, I got it. Name okay. bench. Name bench. Okay. So that yep, I have an article we'll, we'll link to, but name bench basically benchmarks your computer and finds out what is the fastest DNS service that is, is near you that you should use. And it could be, uh, 
yeah, it could be open DNS or it could be someone else. Who knows? Yep. Uh, all right. So another semi related question, Michael wrote, I was wondering how long I should have DHCP leases set on my airport extreme. The default is one day. Is there any benefit to setting it longer or is it preferred in a home network environment to keep it at one day? Uh, my feeling on this is, well, it, it matters only in a very clinical sense. It matters only if you have lots of different devices coming on and off. If you have a friend's iPod touch that joins your network today and then leaves in an hour, your router is going to reserve that lease. And, and by lease, we mean we're, we're going back to the NAT stuff that we talked about where the computer, the router is assigning addresses to every device uh, that, that comes on board. It has to reserve those. Once it assigns one, it can't assign the same address to multiple devices. So a D and this is done by a process called DHCP. It's essentially leasing the address for, for no great charge uh, to each device. And you have to set the amount of time that you want it to keep that address leased to any given device. And, and from, from when the lease starts. And, and so if you're set to say five days, and somebody comes to your house with their iPod touch and says, Hey, I need a, I need an address. And your service says, or your router says, yep, here's an address. Well, for the next five days, that address is unusable by any other device that comes to your network because the lease is open for five days. And, and that's how it works. So from that standpoint, uh, you know, you can decide it depends if you have, if you don't have many guest devices coming on board, then it probably doesn't matter. Uh, but I've found I've had some weird issues and it could be my router, but I've had some weird issues with iOS devices getting leases longer than one day. They, they sometimes hmm. after, after that day, they sometimes kind of fall off the, the, the radar and need their airport reset. Uh, we were having that problem with the kids. iPod touches both of them. So it, again, it could be my router here. It, it might have nothing to do with the iOS devices, but as soon as I made sure that lease time was either set as a DHCP reservation where you make sure that the same device always gets the same address, no matter what uh, either setting it that way or making sure the lease time was one day or less resolve that. No problem. So, um, so I say stick it a day. Okay. The, the only thing I would say, Dave is I don't think it makes a lick of difference. If the number of devices that you potentially have in your network is less than the DHCP range, it doesn't matter. So essentially what you're saying is the, if the, if the number of devices that you're ever going to have on your network is less than the amount of IP addresses in the range that you've defined for DHCP, it doesn't matter. Just putting it, put, putting it in different terms. Yes. That's all. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the point of DHCP, I think is in environments such as an enterprise where then I think it really matters where you can potentially have more devices than you have available IP addresses. Yep. And I think that's really what DHCP was meant for. Right. And and in that case, then I think you would want to have the least time smaller because you want to make sure, all right, I haven't seen this guy. He's, you know, he's inactive or gone yep. or whatever. I'm going to release that lease because it's not going to be used and I'm going to give it to somebody who really needs it. So now, now here's, here's something interesting because it, you could set your lease time for like an hour. Right. And that's totally fine. Uh, and and any sure. device that's there will continually renew its lease automatically. You you as the user don't have to do anything. Now, uh, 
Apple devices hand out leases sequentially. So the first device to get a lease, if, if, if you have, you know, dot 100 through dot 149 as your 50 IP address range, uh, the first IP address it's going to hand out is dot one hundred, and then the next one is dot one hundred one, and the next one's dot one hundred two. But if a hundred has fallen off the network, then the one after that is back to a hundred. Okay, and that can get a little uh, confusing sometimes mm-hmm. uh, because you like your addresses to be, uh, you know, it would be handy to have this, you know, a computer get the same address all the time. My my Linksys router, which actually runs that custom firmware, it does a little hash, uh, a little calculation on the Mac address, on the address of the computer that's hmm. requesting this and tries and gives it an IP address that is based on that calculation. So uh, in theory, if you have, you know, a, a range of 50 addresses, even if, you know, your if your computer hasn't been on my network in six months, it might, it's going to get the same address the next time it comes because the first place it tries to hand huh. it is from that hash, which can be really handy. Now, again, that might be the issue that I was having with the kids. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, you know, it, it's a whole different methodology. So, but, but you know, that's that. So, um, I guess we don't really have time for one more. Do we, we can squeeze one in. We're going to, let's do well, You uh, don't, I know. Let's talk about Paul here. Let's talk about Paul here. So Paul has, has a, has a quick question. We're ah, going to make it, we're going to make it quick. Good one. Yeah. Okay. I promise. <laughs> and, and, yeah. And uh, and this is sort of related to the uh, the crossover discussion that we had in, in the last show. Paul writes, I've been using Macs for over 20 years, and this is in the first time where I've been in a position where I, it seems where there seems genuinely to be no prospect of the Mac and PC playing nicely. And I wondered mm. if you might be able to help with a question I'm having about running a Windows emulator emulator on my machine. Uh, I'm in the UK and it has to do with my accountancy software. And I'm going to skip through a couple of things here that are very, very specific to what he's got going on. And basically what it is, is that the software that he has uh, been using on his Mac that's worked between Mac and the Windows machine his accountant uses will be end of life at the end of this year. Uh, He can run QuickBooks, which is a different package than the one that he's been using. Uh, But the problem is QuickBooks though it's available for the Mac and also available for windows. It doesn't share the same file format and he wants to make sure he does it uh, on the PC. And, and I guess there's a, there's a problem with uh, QuickBooks in, in Europe or something too, where, which is where he is. So essentially what he needs to do is run the windows version of QuickBooks on his Mac and make everything happy with his accountant. And so this is where he gets to his question. Do you have a recommendation of the best way to do this? In your opinion, what is the best, either VMware or Parallels? And if I just have the accountant package or accountant software package installed alongside Windows, how much space do you think it'll take up on my hard drive? All right. I'm going to I'll give my my quick opinion here, John, and then you could yours. Uh, we did la- last show. We talked about crossover from Code Weavers, which is exactly built for what you want to do because it's built for the, you know, those types of people that want to run the one app and essentially have it as Mac like as possible, but it's a windows only app. And so you, you have to do this. Unfortunately, checking the crossover compatibility database, it looks like most newer versions of QuickBooks have not been, uh, they haven't been tweaked to work with 
crossover or more correctly crossover hasn't been tweaked to work with them. So you may have some trouble with QuickBooks uh, and that's unfortunate. Uh, It's, it's worth testing it. It's worth giving it a shot because uh, you really don't have anything to lose there. Failing crossover. I don't think it matters whether you use VMware or parallels or even virtual box from sun. You know, remember VMware and parallels, all the, all of these will run windows on your Mac and then within them, you run whatever software you like, but uh, you know, VMware and parallels are really geared toward the high performance uh, feature rich set. And, and I don't think that's going to be important to you running just QuickBooks on, on your, uh, on your Mac. It might be because they've got their, they've got their, uh, you know, either unity or, or a mode where essentially the windows desktop goes away and you just have these windows that feel like they're Mac windows. Mm. And that may be important to you, but otherwise I think VirtualBox would be the answer. And if it is VMware parallels, I go back and forth, John, I, you know, these days I'm, I'm slightly more of a VMware guy only because that's the one I've installed most recently, but I don't use it enough to really care which one I use. I'm, I think I'm with you, brother. All right. So, um, VMware, and actually I, I would say I'm leaning towards VMware as well because it's the product that I've used consistently and they, they seem to keep up with the, but, but also uh, I have most of the reports out there are that parallels is better for, for people that are looking for the high performance and games and all of that stuff. Uh, from what I understand, parallels is kicking VMware's butt, but that, but that, they oscillate. Just, my they, understanding they is do. they oscillate. Yeah. And actually when I bought my mini from, um, B and H in New York city, I got a free copy of parallels, parallel oh, cool. six, I think. Cool. Yeah, they threw that in there for, for nothing. But actually, it's a, you know, put it on the pile of <laughs> other right. things I haven't looked at yet. But I, I'm totally happy with VMware, but also VirtualBox, you know, it's a basic, uh, uh, the problem I have it's with VirtualBox. It's free, right? VirtualBox is free. It's an open, uh, I believe it's an open source thing. It's, yeah. Yeah, as you, you indicated, it's Sun. The thing is, it's not the performance champ. And it has, the reason I like VMware is that I was working with some fairly exotic hardware at one point, and VirtualBox would just not even recognize certain USB devices that were anything sure. more sophisticated than a, a printer or a mouse or something like that. So, um, yeah, I would say in this case, and, and as far as, you know, uh, uh, how much space it would take, I mean, the software itself, but then, for, for example, Dave, I have, uh, and, and the installation I have, you know, again, I'm an old school type of guy, VMware, I still have Windows XP, I really yeah. haven't even graduated to, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, Vista, yeah, or, well, you know, Windows 7, Windows I think 7, is a little better. Yeah. But, you know, XP, even though it's, you know, still, you know, security nightmare. And, and I every time I start up, I see more, more updates. I'm still running VMware with Windows XP, along with some of the development tools that, uh, that I still like to use under, uh, under Windows uh, Visual Studio. But I, w- I run a 20 gig uh virtual disk image, which I exclude from my time machine backup because it grabs the whole thing. <laughs> and how much of that is full, John? Do you know? Do you have any indication? Uh, of that? Uh, my, my guideline is uh, I allocate at the, at the very least, I think you want to allocate about 10 gigs for okay. just a basic OS. And then you I just can, have 10 gigs for wiggle room. And you can probably you know, get away. Tools. You can probably get away with five, Paul, but, it's going to be tight, but I, I think five would work for you, but, but certainly 10 for, for just windows and QuickBooks, I think is, is, is going yeah. to be more than enough. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love Fogo room. So, uh, yeah. 
And again, be careful because uh, my observation, maybe I set up the disk image wrong, but Time Machine is like, oh, you ran VMware, 20 gigs. So oh. I put in the uh, exclude list. Yeah, you got to put it in the exclude list. All know, right. Striping or something like that. But Dave, you know, we got to talk. Well, you know, I, I think you mentioned earlier, Dave, about emailing us at premium at MacGeekGab. No, no, no. I said premium at MacGeekGab.com. No, no, no. You said premium at <laughs> MacGeekGab.com. But that's not the only way you can get, t- get in touch with us, Dave. You can also call us on the telephone, whether it be an iPhone, a landline, maybe smoke signals. I don't know. But uh, if you wanted to call us, no, you can't call us with smoke signals. But you can oh. call us at 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335. And of course, you can always Skype us to Mac Geek Gab. We'd like to thank Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast for converting this and almost every other episode of Mac Geek Gab to AAC for you. He's been with us Gosh, going on uh, probably over five, well over five years now, almost six. Uh, did did we have an anniversary, Dave? I'm, in I'm June. Sorry. In June. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. That's right. Cashfly. Ca- you were talking about Cashfly. I, I was. Cashfly.com provides all the bandwidth. And uh, and that's it. We're out of here. We'll, uh, we'll see you in a little over a week because I'm away next week. So February 28th, I believe, is the next time that, uh, that we'll be doing this. Where are you going? San Francisco. Oh. Just to get away. Just somewhere to hang out. Have a good weekend. Don't get caught. Made up.